You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Sarah Powers leads yoga retreats throughout the United States, Asia, and Europe. She's published two instructional DVDs, Yin and Vinyasa and Insight Yoga. Her new book is Insight Yoga. Thank you for joining me, Sarah. Thank you for being interested in having me here. Sarah, tell me a little bit about some of the luminaries in this field who inspired you. In In the introduction, we hear about Hiroshi Motoyama, Yoshio Manaka, James Oshman, and of course, uh, your, I guess your mentor or yogi, uh, Paul Grilly. Tell us a little bit about these people and where they sit in relation to you and then where you would sit in relation to us. Well, I was influenced by Paul Grilly years and years ago because we were both teaching at a yoga school in California. And he was at that time studying a lot of Dr. Hiroshi Motoyama's translated books, and he's a Japanese master, and went over to Japan and learned from him personally, and was also studying a lot of yoga principles and doing a yoga practice, and I was going into his classes when I was free after my own teaching, and there was a very quiet contemplative atmosphere he was creating where he would put himself in certain shapes, and those in the class were invited to just copy him, and when he moved, we moved, which sometimes was 20 minutes later. And I found that extremely provocative, highly uh, challenging, and yet there was something that it was triggering in me in terms of being interested in discovering why I was so uncomfortable, not just with my body, but with my mind states. And I moved away from California, as did Paul, and I went off and had uh, influences from other Buddhist teachers and my own yoga practice, and found that those seeds of investigation that he had really helped me uncover in those initial years began to really guide me into wanting practices that would allow me to question what it was that was uh, important in terms of being intimate with my experience, with my body, with, with various mind states. And the Buddhist teachings, I think, really gave me a vocabulary for that. They gave me uh, inroads through practices that let me understand my own mind through experiencing long-held yoga poses. I blended what I was learning in the Buddhist schools with my own yoga practice, and eventually went to Japan as well and studied with Dr. Motoyama, who is an amazingly uh, awakened yogi who understands the energy body very intimately, is a healer, a Shinto priest, and a scientist. So he's a man of many talents, also a father with five children, so he's someone who's in the world and who's someone that's very much an ascetic inside himself. And he's influenced me very much because of bringing the additional mapping of Chinese medicine to the yogic understanding and to Zen Buddhism, of which all three he's very um, deeply um, dedicated. So where I am is really wanting to carry the torch of what I've learned from Paul, what 
Paul has learned from many as well as Dr. Motoyama and add to it, I suppose, from my perspective, the trainings in mindfulness meditation in the psychological realm that I've studied in transpersonal psychology. So I would say that for me, insight yoga is a blend of yoga, Buddhism, Chinese medicine, and transpersonal psychology. Well, well tell me, what, what is transpersonal psychology? I, I don't know. It's a, the blend of the wisdom traditions from the East with traditional psychological understanding and mapping of personality development. So it's understanding how the personality self can become healthier and heal the wounds of mistreatment and of being raised in ways where we didn't have empathic others really honoring some of our needs. And as well, it's understanding that there's a ground of being within one that transcends the ego personality that is more of a, a universal or what you could call the the spirit that most Eastern traditions speak to. So it's a blend of you know, two very diverse subjects. Well, that's really fascinating. Now, um, one of the things, this book is, as you say, is, is written with uh, three approaches. I really like what uh, Mr. Grilly said in the, uh, in the introduction that you could, in comparing it to hearing, you know, a, a Latin, German, and English uh, terms all referring to the same kind of aspects of medicine. And, and the three approaches are Taoist, Buddhist, and Sanskrit. Is that correct? Right. Those would be interwoven words that instead of translating, they're appropriate at different times. Mm -hmm. Now, um, you begin this book with ans asking the first question that came to my mind. But when I hear yoga, I think of Yogi Bear. <laughs> <laughs> Too many. So, uh, yeah, a very cool, calm cat. Yeah. <laughs> or bear, we should say. Your bear, yeah. <laughs> um, so, but you ask and answer the question, what is yoga? So, so tell us, what, what is yoga? You know, it has a lot of meanings to different people now that it's become such a popular term. Mm -hmm. But I think of it as an introspective path of self-transformation. And one who practices yoga is called a, a yogini, if you're female, or a yogi, one who's dedicated to this path, utilizes various practices to integrate and enhance the body, breath, and mind. And I've found that there are many, many lineages and thousands of practices. And what I utilize are practices that really help me feel connected daily to what I would call kind of turning on the lights inside, to being awake and aware at the level of the physical and energetic body, being current or attuned to the emotional body, and being kind of crisp and clear in the mental body. That these layers of our being are all interdependent, and yet they're distinct aspects of experience that we can turn our attention to and grow in awareness of. And that is a yogic path of awareness. And, and this is the unified but separate simple presence? Yes, which presence is a quality of knowing these layers of your being simultaneously mm -hmm. and all of the 
changing details within each area. I mean, your body has lots of sensations pulsing through it at any moment. Your energy body has more of a, a, a kind of um, radiance, so it's either dull or bright. And the emotional body, of course, has lots of feelings, and the mental body has mind states, sometimes quiet, sometimes like a crowded closet. So these are all doors of perception about any given moment. I can see the world through my mental experience. I could see it from how I'm feeling, or I could be completely caught up in experiencing it from whether or not my body feels sick or well. And so to really be integrated is to have a full spectrum of attention that can incorporate all these various levels without feeling the need to struggle with any particular dimension. And that is very challenging and requires a committed practice. Now, you talk about, um, one of the things I liked is that you explained that uh, it's a, <clears throat> that yoga is an attempt to relax the paradoxes. And the word itself mm. comes from yoking. Yes. Yoga is a word that is often translated as integrating or union with the idea that we are not intrinsically fractured, but our experience is one in which we are not connected to the various dimensions of our being. And yoga is a way of bringing that connection into conscious awareness. So polarities of mind-body, of uh, feeling versus thinking, of even simple physical feelings of lightness versus heaviness, of really being able to be attuned to these dualities, <coughs> excuse me, seeming dualities, in a way that's encompassing of the, um, the way they are, are held in a, a complementarity between them. So we wouldn't feel softness if we didn't know what hardness meant. And so instead of feeling like we only prefer a certain thing, yoga is a way of really attuning your attention to the variations and at the same time knowing the distinctions. Well, this is fascinating. Now, you, you talk about something called asanas. What, what are asanas? Asanas, asanas okay. are, is a word for posture. It's for the various ways we would put our bodies into different shapes. And when you take your skeleton and change the way it's held or the way it's pressured or the way it's pulled, it affects the way the connective tissue responds. And inside the connective tissue are these energetic flows called in yoga nadis and also in Chinese medicine, meridians. These are the pathways that our animating energy moves through us, which affects how we feel physically, emotionally, and mentally. So when these pathways are not so healthy, we would say that they're deficient. Or when they're blocked, we would say that they're stagnant. And so yoga is a way of raising the, the deficiency and stimulating the stagnancy. And so there's more vitality that we experience. Vitality meaning we can feel very enlivened by any given moment, even when the body might be sick, the emotions might be sad, or the mind might be feeling very closed. And so the various conditions of the body 
the heart and the mind can all be held in a larger energetic container of attention. And that breeds happiness, which is one of the main, uh, you could say, um, indications that your practice is skillful, that there's an underlying quality of contentment, even when conditions are different than we would prefer. Rudyard Kipling, if you can keep your head and win all about you, are losing theirs. Exactly. <laughs> I've read that poem in class. <laughs> <laughs> um, you talk about yoga um, as, a, as a path, mm. and, and um, uh, it's a path to home. And it seems to me there's a lot of flow states in, in the way in your vision of yoga, that there's the, the chi, which is the prana, the life force mm-hmm. that's flowing through us and has to mm-hmm. flow through the meridians. And, and then the practice of yoga itself is a flow from mm-hmm. uh, knowing absolutely nothing, which is where I'm at this moment, <laughs> to knowing something at least. And you talk about three levels of development, mm-hmm. the engaging the intellect, the mind, and the heart and the commitment to whole being. Could you talk about those and, and you know, explain those a little better for us? Sure. I mean, like the understanding from Taoism that when you align yourself with the continual flow of life, you're aligned with the natural Tao, that there's a a way that we can first see that life is ever-changing all around us. There's a lot we don't have control over. There are aspects that we can actually participate in if we have um, aligned our intelligence well. And I think as we're maturing, we see how we might fit in to the rhythms of life in a way that might be satisfying for ourselves and might contribute to the communities and world around us. And so we really are, I think from adolescence to young adulthood, we're seeing how we can step into the stream of life in a way that feels like it's you know, mutually participatory and breeds a sense of well-being. And the, f- the first step in drawing a a direction that's meaningful is to have that model to us. We need to actually see around us some way of living that we want to aspire to. And so giving our children or giving ourselves the opportunity for contact, for seeing outside us a, a way that we might want to start to move towards. And so the first level of development to start a spiritual path is that sense of aspiration to really see it and then hear some of the descriptions on how that life is led it's not yet prescriptive we don't know how to do it ourselves, but we're seeing that there's a certain movement in that person's choices that lead to a life that has less uh, struggle or dissonance in it than Maybe the the way we see people rushing around on the street or homeless on the street, you know, the two extremes. What constitutes a a life that's visioned from the person really wanting to have well-being inside? And so the first step is really hearing the description of that life and having it trigger some interest, some curiosity. Oh, that is something that I hadn't yet considered. Well, let me then learn something about the specifics. What does it take to have a life lived in that direction, being meaningful for the community and meaningful 
meaningful for the individual. And this, the second step then would be to actually, having heard some about that life, or you could say heard some about the teachings of a yogic life, well now I need to really contemplate them and have time for those ideas to ruminate around inside me, whether it's taking walks in nature, whether it's being in a meditative, contemplative mode at home for a few minutes a day. So from hearing to contemplation, these kinds of possibilities start to awaken aspects of our intelligence that kind of call us towards more meaning from within us. So the third stage from hearing to contemplating is to then actually pick up the tools themselves and start to work with them. And I think that these three stages are not just a staircase down deeper in one directional. They'll be continually spiraling. And so we may be starting out on a particular practice and involved in still contemplating what's meaningful, and then still hearing teachings. And these three aspects intertwined start to breed some maturity, some trust in our own sense of direction. And while you'll still have impact from the outside, you start to awaken the inner guidance. And that's the true, I think, place of self-reliance and self-trust that the practices can breed. One of the things that, uh, a quote that you have in here, I thought that was very interesting, was um, that you want to understand these practices. And and the quote is, understanding without practice is better than practice without understanding. Uh, That's from the Upanishads. That's the Indian version? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that, because that's kind of not what I would have expected. I would have expected Mm. the idea that if you just did through rote repetition the exercises or the... the, um, you know, I guess the the lessons that from that through that rote repetition, your self would disappear, and then you'd awaken whatever it was you were trying to get at. I think what I was so inspired by with that quote, and why I've ruminated it over it often in my own practice life and share it to others when I'm teaching, is that often we jump into practices or activities without really aligning our motivation or understanding really what it is that we're attempting to cultivate. And it's a lot longer road when our heart and minds are not really participating in a clear and open way. And so to understand what it is we're really doing there, to make whatever is our unconscious motivations more conscious, then there's the second line, which comes after that line, is understanding with practice is better than understanding without practice. And so it's not that we just intellectually need to figure out what these paths mean and then we'll have all we need. But I think it's very important to read about and talk about and ruminate about practices before we actually fully commit to taking the time to put the practices to the test. I've seen people who understand very little and then practice a lot without a lot of guidance or feedback. And because we're unconscious of so many of our patterns, 
of reactivity, we can be, let's say, frustrated or angry and just jump into the practice. And the practice can take us more towards the kind of constriction that anger and frustration have already started to develop in us. So I think pausing and reminding ourselves every time we practice of why I'm here, what it is this practice carries in terms of potency and blessings, and then start the practice from that place of conscious motivation, it accelerates the process of bringing the true wholesome fruition from the practice itself. And so the third line of that Upanishad, the first again being understanding without practice is better than practice without understanding. The second being understanding with practice is better than understanding without practice. And the third line is resting in your authentic nature is better than any understanding or practice. Meaning that when you have some intellectual grasp of the practice, you will have a good portal in to it, and now you come into it, and you actually practice, so those understandings start to blossom, not just as ideas, but as deeply rooted feelings inside that you can have confidence in, and then you live from that sense of true self-awareness and confidence, and the practice and the understanding are absorbed into a quality of being. And so there's a natural trajectory there. That, <clears throat> well, that makes sense to me. Um, one of the things you emphasize here is the importance of teachers, uh, ha- like a, a personal teacher, not just your book. So yes. this is interesting because you're, you're arguing for your book for more than a book. Tell me why teachers are important. Why can't mm. I get it all from reading a book? Mm. Well, similarly, I think that's good to speak about after we've just talked about that quote from the ancient texts about understanding and practice and authentic being, that when we come to a practice, we come with a lot of assumptions and uninvestigated beliefs and uh, patterns of reactivity and unwieldy mind states. And so the person who starts the practice is not necessarily integrated or aligned with their natural authenticity. And so that character that we are opens the book and understands some of it, but it's all filtered through our misperceptions right now. And uh, books are, are wonderful triggers for us to start to have ideas we wouldn't normally have without contacting people who live those ideas. It was the first way I was introduced to the practice. My brother handed me a yoga book and I flipped through it, saw some poses and thought it would be interesting to try. I found it extremely challenging because I didn't have the inner resources to understand what I was reading or know how to copy the picture so well. So it was a seed. And once I heard there was a yoga class nearby, from the book I realized, oh, it would be great to have live teachings because they carry not only the person having had the experience so I can ask them and, and have some personal guidance, but in live teachings, there's an, an energetic absorption that we receive about the teachings being together. So I think books are supports, but that they do not substitute for having that direct interaction with somebody who lives the teachings. 
the problem is if you just go to a class and then you try to pick up the practice at home, we're very forgetful. And so we don't really remember what body sequence we did or what concepts were talked about. But if we have the book, then that can trigger our memory from when we were with the teacher in class. And so I think they're wonderful supports. If you have a teacher who has a book, then you can take them home. <laughs> and that's why I offered the book after teaching for over 20 years, so that some people who will never find me, we're not in the same location at the same time, have a book, and then they'll find a teacher, hopefully. And those who do study with me will have resources to continue to deepen their own practice when we're not together. You also put out uh, a couple of DVDs. Did you put the DVDs out first? Yes. The DVDs were made a number of years ago and have similar themes in them, but with you know different sequences and slightly different wording, of course, than the book. And they are also guidance and support for practitioners. The, the visual is even more helpful than just the written word. So I do feel like videos can be helpful. But again, because we don't have the live feedback, if we just do our practice from a video and we haven't had any live teachings, our unconscious patterns will keep guiding the organism and we won't know it because mm. nobody's reflected that back to us. I can't talk to you from the screen or from the book. <laughs> if you do, I'm maybe in the scared. future. <laughs> yeah. Um, could you talk about the the place of books in yoga practice? I I mean, what made you decide to write a book? This is your first book. This is my first book. What made you decide? To I write started it? a book that I put aside to write this book. I wrote a, a small book that I'm going to elongate now on conscious parenting. I homeschooled my daughter and home birthed her and uh, she traveled with us and is uh, a young yogini. How so old is she now? She's 16. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And she's moved off to New York and is at college at Sarah Lawrence. So she, that will be something I pick up now that I finish this book. But I put that aside because there was a growing interest in this integration of how the aspects of Chinese medicine that can keep the pranic body very mm, buoyant and able to restabilize its natural equilibrium like you would by going to an acupuncturist. The, pran the pranic body being the, being the chi, chi body. Chi, okay. I interchange these terms, right. Indian and, and Chinese. That, um, that through your yoga practice, it's a, it's a really great preventative for healing different imbalances. And I go to the acupuncturist much less now that I have a personalized practice that affects particular meridians. And people were often coming up to me and asking me to write the book. You know, I would like to take this information and help my aunt or my son at home has kidney issues. And there's only so much one can do to influence the small community that you're around when you're teaching. And I thought putting the principles down that I've utilized for so many years and that I've integrated and the work that it's taken to really bring these very separate and complex and diverse subjects together in one book think was a way of just offering a gift to accelerate people's own healing and ways of understanding their own um, body and heart and mind. I do feel like um, it's a tool that will help people 
when they need more support, find an acupuncturist. When they need to deepen their own understanding of how they're getting stuck unconsciously, find a local teacher. But in terms of really learning how to have self-care, we need our own practice and we need to do that by ourselves. And having a book that you can open and follow a sequence, I've got eight different sequences in the book that I think can be tailor-made to how you're feeling at different times. And so I, I wrote different suggestions on how to sequence different practices together for different effects, that that gives you a really nice infrastructure to start from, to work on your own. And then creatively people will expand on what's written in this book and these paths will grow as more people start to actually live them themselves. That's really interesting. One thing that, that fascinates me is the uh, variety within the practice of yogi. There's, there's so many different uh, techniques, paths, schools. Could you talk about how you, having created essentially your own school, which uh, is a synthesis of the Chinese medicine, the Buddhism, and the yogic path, traditional yogic path, mm -hmm. could you talk about how you feel about having all these other schools and, you know, somebody picks up your book and they're going to go to their yoga teacher who may know nothing about you and have something completely different? Mm -hmm. There is, a, I think, a lot of diversity within any spiritual path because each person who digests the teachings ends up really emphasizing what they feel is most valuable for their personal growth. And so there's a continual sense of respecting the stream of what the tradition really emphasizes and then adapting it to what is personally practical and useful for the practitioner. And within the yoga schools, measuring down into within the Hatha yoga schools, which are, there are many yoga schools, some of which are not necessarily focused on body-based awareness. Some are more focused on what's called bhakti yoga, enlivening a real sense of devotion. And then there's jhana yoga, which is really understanding more through inquiry and using our intellect and mind states. And then hatha yoga is a yoga that uses the body as the jump-off point for deepening intelligence and investigation, knowing that the energy body is very much um, influencing the heart and mind. And I was very attracted to hatha yoga because I really love the idea that we can be connected and uh, very enlivened in our bodies as the particular vehicle for awakening, since I am in my body this whole life. It goes with me everywhere. I didn't want a path that didn't include the body. And within the Hatha Yoga schools, there are many sub-schools, uh, of which many people will be familiar with Ashtanga Yoga, which was a path that I took up very early, which is a flow-style practice from an, an Indian master named Sri Patabi Joyce. And so I studied that physical, energetic school and still practice in that way. And there's also a Iyengar yoga schools, which are very focused on precision and alignment and attention to consciousness of mind inside the body. And then there's yoga therapy. There's a, a school that really helps people at different levels of wellness enter their bodies, no matter what kind of limitations they have, and really take up residence in a wholesome way. And so these are the three Hatha Yoga schools 
along with the style that we've talked about, the yin style, through Paul Grilly and Dr. Motoyama. And so these four streams have influenced my relationship to my body and my yogic path. Someone else might feel completely fed by just one of those four schools. And so I think there's room for integrators, like myself, and purists. And I'm very happy that a lot of my teachers were purists, but I also felt that I was fed by the multiplicity of styles. And so I tend to attract people who are also interested in seeing within their path what aspects are not as emphasized. Well, it might be emphasized in another path. And so although there's a lot of meditation in the yogic path, my particular contact, when I was ready to learn meditation, I contacted, because of living in Northern California, a lot of Buddhist teachers. Their psychological languaging and the exquisite teachings that the Buddha mapped out spoke to my particular way of understanding. And so it, was, it felt natural that the Buddha's teachings, of, which was someone who's a very dedicated yogi, would be integrated into my hatha yoga paths. And so I'm open to streams that help embodied wholeness because eventually we transcend labels. And if Chinese medicine can help me understand how to heal certain constitutional patterns, then I'm going to be excited to add that. If somebody else would prefer to just do Taoist practices that Chinese medicine stems from, then I think that that's where they should stay and be fed from. And so we can all find what we need to live a life that's really wise and compassionate. And I don't spend a lot of time um, comparing the schools in ways that uh, disparages the different styles. But the fruition is in how people are living. I just find it so interesting that there are so many. Oh. Now, now um, one thing you mentioned, time. Mm. We're all, I mean, time is our most valuable resource. Forget mm-hmm. money, forget everything else. Time, we have so little time in the day. How do we carve out the time to do this and, and, and make it so that we get the most out of it? It's a really important question and one I bring up often in workshops and trainings when teachers are you know, teaching people who are very busy and they've come to maybe just exercise their body. The difference between just an exercise system and coming to a yoga class is that it's an opportunity to really connect the body to the flow of breath to mind states. And this is something that we take with us wherever we go. So we might think we have no time, but it's really our perception of how we're living. If we're rushed, then we're really not present for what's going on now because we're worried about how we're going to be when we arrive in the future. And so yoga really teaches us how to live our moments in a collected and more, you could say, pure way. You know, like the childlike way of if... You're here now building a sandcastle. You may stomp on it an hour from now, but right now, bring your whole being to the experience. Because in that experience is fulfillment. And that's where you resource your natural creativity. So we might take an hour once a week when we begin, and it will trigger this interest that, wow, this one hour affects 
a myriad of hours after practice. There's a quality of well-being and presence that we carry from our practice that influences how we feel in our moments after. And that will grow. Somebody will, who's only doing once a week will start to feel like, hmm, I feel so different in my moments having spent my hour that way, even though I could have done something like get more emails done. My sense of living in a connected and wholesome way was influenced by that hour. So maybe if I take 10 minutes a day to tease out the parts of the practice that within 10 minutes I can connect with, that will actually affect my whole day, all my moments. And practice does take time, but starting out with 10 minutes will alter one's life in a dramatic and potent way. And that's usually what I recommend, that just taking a moment to connect into the breath, to recognize how we're feeling in our power center down in our belly, and to give ourselves room to breathe and room to feel, will end up giving us much more room to feel like we're not rushed and time isn't this huge burden on us. Time isn't out there. Our perception of time is what becomes the poison. That's a fascinating uh, perception itself. <laughs> um, tell us a little bit about meridian theory. What are meridians uh, or nadis? And, and tell us also about the, the three kinds of chi. Well, meridian theory is uh, an understanding that housed in this highly complex body of ours, within the connective tissue is a very intelligent energetic system that is influenced by the postures the body is in and the mind states of the individual in the body. And so meridian theory focuses on influencing this very sensitive energetic system by putting the body in various postures or putting pressure on the body, which shiatsu or acupressure is based on, or even putting a prick in certain energetic vital points, which acupuncture is based on, and that those particular ways of influencing the body through pressure, through pulling, through attention, affects the way the energy moves through the channels. So the meridians are the channels, and the energy moving through them is called chi, or ki, or prana. In Indian languaging, which, which is Sanskrit, the channels are called nadis. And in Hatha Yoga, we're placing our body in different shapes. And instead of moving in and out of the poses rapidly, which is one way of influencing the chi that's more near the surface of the body, what we could call as yang chi, we can also influence the the way energy flows more at the core of the body, which is through actually the joints and the bones, by placing the body into these shapes and staying a while. So it's non-rhythmic activity. And it's closer to what you do when you lay very still and someone does acupressure or acupuncture on you. And this influences what's called the yin chi, the chi that flows more at the center of the body, which connects with organ health. The meridians flow in patterns from the feet up, some of them, 
from the head down others, and then from the center of the body out into the extremities. And there's 12 meridians through the body that we can affect by our yoga postures that can influence the health of the kidneys, the liver, the spleen, and other such organs. It, tell us a little bit. Let's talk uh, about something you mentioned, yin and, and yang, or yang. <laughs> Both ways. Okay. Uh, I, I was kind of surprised to, to think that yin was the dark, concealed, and feminine aspect. I, would have, I wouldn't have thought, I would have thought the dark aspect was uh, male. And it's true that different systems talk about these polarities in different ways, mm-hmm. even within the Chinese system. Mm-hmm. And so I'm using these terms to reflect the understanding that yin, if we look at that yin-yang symbol of the black and white circle that's so commonly seen now, with the opposite color dot in each, which is a wonderful way of visually seeing the unseen dimensions. And the dark side of that circle is referring to that which is more hidden, that which is less obvious, the womb-like nature. And so you could think of it like that in terms of its femininity, that which is more near the center of things, closer to the earth. And then the white side of those circles is likened to the young side of life, that which is more near the surface, which is brighter, which is more active, which we can reach more easily, more near the heavens, and that's the yang or masculine side. These don't really refer to gender specifics. Mm -hmm. They refer to principles within all aspects of nature. Mm -hmm. And so a male has masculine and feminine or yin and yang aspects within them. So does a female. But we may not have direct access to the other side of our nature. We may be hyper-masculine and we might be in a female gender body. And so it can be very helpful to enliven the yin side of our nature so that we have more natural balance and ability to be both receptive and yielding as well as very active and responsive. And so my interest in being a wholesome, intelligent being is that I want access to all sides of my nature and therefore I need to actually question when I'm feeling a lack of access to my natural ground of being. What is out of balance right now? Is there an excess of yin or a depletion of yin? Is there an excess of yang or a depletion of yang? And so learning to avoid deprivation and excess and actually move towards whatever is not dominant right now creates a a way of integrity that's quite natural in nature, living the seasons of our life. You talk about the organs in our body in a way I've never heard described. Uh, You have them in yin and yang pairs, and Mm. you kind of rank them in terms of uh, import. In fact, you've even got a, a diagram in the book that relates them to um, the five element theory. And so tell us a little bit about the organ pairs and, and how, is this something that you yourself created or is this something no. out of the teachings? No, this is using the traditional understanding of both yin-yang theory and five element theory mm-hmm. are different schools of thought within understanding of Chinese medicine. And 
Five element theory is really a way of looking at ourselves with a little more detail, and I think the two ways of um, understanding how we operate can complement each other. And five element theory really looks at how elements in our body and in our emotions can be categorized as having certain similarities with aspects in nature. And so, for example, the kidneys are obviously filters for the blood on a physical level, but energetically they really relate to elements of flow, like water in nature, and so they're often connected with the idea of water, whereas the liver in five-element theory is connected with the concept in nature of wood. Obviously the liver is not made of wood, so they're not direct designations, they're more poetic. They're a way of seeing that, like wood or like trees, the liver needs to be both rooted and flexible to the changing weather. The liver is uh, the detox center of the body, so it needs to be both healthy enough to receive lots of toxins and flexible enough to deal with the diversity with which it is constantly bombarded. And so it was really a way of understanding my system with more of a magnifying glass to say, oh, I'm having poor lower body circulation. Well, in Chinese medicine, that's connected with poor kidney qi. And wow, I have had back injuries. Well, the back health is connected with healthy kidney qi. And then I had a reproductive issue of uh, a cyst. And in studying a little deeper in Chinese medicine, kidney qi disharmonies are related to reproductive issues. And so this started to put the mapping together for me to realize in my yoga practice, instead of it being generic, if I do certain poses that help stimulate the balancing of the kidney chi, this will help my particular constitution's needs and give me more appropriate ways of taking care of my particular garden. One of the things I think that's really interesting about your book and your approach is how it really allows the uh, reader and the individual to, to customize it. I think that we, we, it's not a, it's more a set of guidelines than a prescription. Yes. And I think the more we study and are influenced by other teachers, that's why even if someone has my book and yet their teacher has a, a very different mapping, that they'll simply have more tools to draw from. And the exposure can really widen what we choose to use at any given moment so that we're appropriate and skillful with ourselves. And that's only grown with my devotion to the path through the last few decades. I may have been stronger at 19 when I was practicing yoga. I may have had a quicker time uh, healing because of having a younger body. But my exposure to the variety of teachings and my sensitivity and kindness that's grown to how I treat myself has made me a much more advanced practitioner on the inside, even if I'm no longer doing the very gymnastic advanced practices that I enjoyed jumping through when I was very young. And I guess this goes to uh, talking about the two kinds of chi you mentioned. We have the chi we inherit and mm. the chi we, we acquire. And yeah. so your, your chi is the chi you've acquired through all your years of practice. Exactly. Uh, with 
the inherited chi, which is about our particular constitution, which is set at birth. It's our genetic makeup uh, linked to, you could say, our particular uh, karmic stream. That how we treat this particular garden that we've been given to care for is dependent on what we eat, what we entertain as far as what's meaningful, and you know what we choose to do with our time. And so this is all affecting the chi that is what you would call the acquired chi. So there's the inherited chi, and then there's how I'm going to actually use the supply that I have. And I can drain it and be inappropriate by not having sensitivity to myself. Or I can actually enhance my constitution by the choices I make and how I live my life, what I put in my body, and how I treat others. So these two aspects of what I was came in with and then what I utilize that's already here through the chi that's in food and through absorbing chi from activities, being nourished by my experiences, those two need to be constantly uh, attended to to see if they actually match. Having a sensitive organism, if I was a stockbroker and drove around in a fast car in the middle of a city and ate really spicy foods, I would be hospitalized by now in my mid-40s. That may have been attractive to me because I have a lot of, now to go to the Ayurvedic system, a lot of what's pitta. In the Chinese system, I have a lot of heart fire energy. So this speed and heat that's already constitutional would then be met with a life that adds more speed and heat, which would cause not only ill health, but a lot of irritation, unhappiness, and disappointment. And so to get to know what nourishes my organism and what would balance what I've already been given, for me that's the ingredients for a, a sane and meaningful life. Tell me about homeostasis. Uh, how do we achieve that? And why? <laughs> well, similarly to this discussion we're in now, you know, having the capacity to make certain choices that allow the inner organs to have uh, an ability to have an ongoing sense of equilibrium between them, since they're all interdependent, to have a connection between the body and mind so that I'm not split off and living from the neck up, and being able to actually feel into how the sense doors are constantly bombarded by stimulus and how there's this organism here, me, who's in relationship to the environment all the time. And so homeostasis is kind of drawing from that term. It's more biologically based in a more psychosomatic way. How can there be a sense of interdependence where I'm connected to my inner experience and at the same time intimate with what's going on in my environments around me, where I can stay alive to the feeling tones in you that are emanating out of you right now and not at the same time feel like in relating to you that I have to disconnect from me. That broadening of intimacy with inner and outer until there's not so much distinction between inner and outer, 
there's a complementarity of engagement, that to me creates a, a sense of immense freshness and vitality in ordinary moments. And that kind of homeostasis, that kind of undulating breathing in life and breathing out intelligence was modeled to me from teachers and struck me as the only way to really live. This brings us to some of the meditation that we have at the back of the book, mm. the Buddhist meditation. Because a lot of this, a lot of what you say reminds me of many of the writers I've talked to who are Buddhists or, you know, immersed in Buddhist tradition, mm-hmm. talk about this ability to embrace opposites mm-hmm. and, and, and embrace paradox even. Mm-hmm. Tell us about your, how your meditation techniques help us do that. There's a way that we can work with what is arising and influence it in a positive direction. So in yoga practices, if we're feeling scared or feeling a little uh, stuck inside, we can slow down our breath, and that automatically stimulates the parasympathetic nervous system, which sends signals through the whole body to relax and digest our experience. And so this style of changing the inner atmosphere through applying a technique can be very appropriate and uh, a wholesome addition to how we behave in any given moment. But it's a particular aspect of our intelligence that is moving towards change, manipulating the moment in a direction that would make us feel better. There's another aspect of our intelligence that doesn't actually interfere with our experience, but mindfulness techniques actually help us listen and participate in feeling the moment without directing any aspect of change so that we can garner some understanding of the intrinsic nature of change itself. Oftentimes we think that in order to be happy this moment, I need to hold on to what's pleasant or push away what is starting to make me feel unpleasant. And those motivations constantly move us out of being alive and accepting to the moment in how it is. So Buddhist meditation techniques help us discover that part of why we're struggling or suffering is not so much in the pain itself or in the situation being challenging. It's in our resistance to what's happening, our struggle with the situation. And so if we take our attention and put it on the resistance rather than the object of what we're resisting, the resistance itself starts to fade because the attention that was fed into resistance is now going into investigation. And as we investigate, let's say, just a pain in our hip while we're sitting still, instead of moving to try to get rid of the pain and make ourselves feel better, if we relax our struggle with the pain, it's interesting how the pain may be no less strong, but the mind is no longer at odds with the pain because it's simply observing how pain operates, how it fluctuates, how it moves. 
And so what seemed like this very permanent, hard experience is now a porous, interesting event called pain. It, this reminds me, uh, a couple of days ago, I talked with a guy named uh, Marty Horowitz, and he had a book called A Course in Happiness. Mm-hmm. And, and this reminds me uh, of his idea that when you're experiencing a, a, you know, negative emotions, that one of the ways to engage yourself is to step back and look at them with awe. And, oh, wow, I can't even believe I could feel that way. Mm, I like that. And that is one of the aspects that uh, I speak about in the book is how you know, life is a state of mind and we are so identified with our emotional states. And instead of ignoring them, splitting off from them, or trying to only have the positive side of emotions, since that's impossible, we are going to constantly experience the full spectrum growing in our emotional intelligence and our emotional adaptability and inclusiveness means we're going to have to explore the ways in which we struggle and suffer. And those actually become portals into deeper understanding. So they become invitations of discovery. And that's, I think, what this author Horowitz was meaning. They become this kind of genuine sense of wonderment. Like, oh, look, what's here? Look what's visiting me now. What is this really like? What is it like in my body? to experience fear instead of be acting out from fear or feel completely blinded by fear what is it like to be fearful consciously and so a meditation practice is a time when we suspend behaving from the emotions or the mind states and instead we investigate them and what's required is that we have curiosity Because without curiosity, we're going to assume that how we are interpreting the moment is completely appropriate. And often it's so skewed because it's through the filters of our likes and dislikes. And so a practice which helps us acknowledge our biases and then temporarily suspend acting out from them helps us get to know ourselves in ways that moving towards making change happen won't allow us that that depth of insight. And so we need more stillness practices so we can see our craziness and start to see that there's also wisdom in the seeing. I've been speaking with Sarah Powers. Her new book is Insight Yoga. Thank you for joining me, Sarah. Thank you so much. This has been very enjoyable. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.